0: Back chat. Back chat. Back chat. Back chat. Back. Back chat. Politics and current affairs. Backpack. Backpack. Back chat. Back chat. Back chat. Your alternative to talk back. That's right, you are listening to Backchat here on FBI Radio, your freshest wrap of news and current affairs. I'm Swetha Das. And I'm Amber Schultz, filling in for Shami. This week
1: in the news, we've seen the third Democratic presidential debate and Donald Trump seemingly forget that he had a younger son. Yikes. But, as always, we're going to be giving you the news that you might not have heard on your airwaves this week.
0: That's right. First up, we have Dr. Nicole Lee, a professor at Curtin University's National Drug Research Institute, to chat about the federal government's proposal to drug test welfare recipients.
1: After that, we'll be speaking to Michael Rodriguez, who's on the chair of the Nighttime the Nighttime Industries Association by night, and by day he runs the magazine Time Out. He'll be discussing the New South Wales government's decision to wind back Sydney's lockout laws.
0: But that's not all, because finally on the show we're going to have Michelle Grace Hunder joining us to talk about Her Sound, Her Story doco, which explores women in Australia's music scene, which is being released next Friday. But we also have our wonderful FBI supporter drive going on right now. You know, here at FBI Radio, we've made a commitment to support emerging Sydney artists and foster a strong local culture. So please do consider becoming a supporter and call in on eight double three double two nine four five. That's eight double three double two
2: nine four five. To show us all what a beep lying, beep backstabbing, beep treacherous, beep beep she is. Thanks. Column. Backchat, your alternative to talk back.
1: Scott Morrison's government has revived controversial legislation that would force 5,000 start and Youth Allowance recipients to undergo drug testing to get their welfare payments.
0: The coalition has framed the plan as part of the Prime Minister's compassionate conservatism. But the proposal <laughs> is reviled by welfare groups and health experts who point to overseas evidence as proof the idea is ill conceived and counterproductive.
1: Now, we have drug policy expert Dr Nicole Lee from Curtin University's National Drug Research Institute here to discuss the legislation and help us understand exactly what's going on.
0: Hi there, Nicole. Morning. How are you? Pretty good. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So, can you give us an overview of what this drug testing legislation will look like?
2: Yeah. So, the proposal is pretty similar to the last two attempts to get it through the Senate. Um, it's framed as a two-year trial. Uh, it's 5,000 uh, new recipients from next year onto new, who go onto new start and use allowance, um, and they're testing for a range of drugs in three um, key locations: uh, Queensland, in New South, sorry, in Queensland, New South Wales, and um, Western Australia. Um, the locations are kind of um, more or less known drug hotspots. For, um, uh, and uh, around Australia. Um, so the the only difference is that from the previous, um, the previous uh, legislation is that cocaine has now been added to the list. Um, so the list now includes methamphetamine, ecstasy, opioids um, like heroin, cannabis and cocaine. And anyone who tests positive will be put on income management. So 80% of their income will be quarantined um, and they'll only have uh, free reign to spend 20% of it. Um, and then if they do test positive, they'll need to take a second test uh, within 25 days. Uh, and if you have two positive tests, you get referred to a medical professional for assessment and possible treatment. Wow, so it's it's
1: pretty strict, Now, you have to do two tests, but how reliable could we expect these tests to be?
2: Well, it depends on what they're going to be using for tests. So um, the tests are reasonably reliable within a time frame to pick up a range of drugs, but that time frame is about usually about two to three days. So if you've used about two to three days before the test, you might get picked up on most drugs. Um, Urine tests uh, or blood tests are probably the, the most accurate, but urine tests are probably the most accurate out of all of the easy tests to do. Uh, and we don't know whether they'll be um, uh, on-the-spot urine tests or they'll be sent to the lab for detailed analysis, which is much more accurate.
0: So do we know of any legitimate links between drug use and unemployment?
2: So there's the first thing to keep in mind is that Use of drugs is different from having a problem with drugs. Not everybody has a problem with drugs who uses them. In fact, the large proportion of people who use drugs, um, even on a relatively regular basis, aren't dependent on them and don't have any other significant long-term problems. Um, So there is not a link between using drugs and drug-seeking. There may be some links between having a problem with drugs um, and a whole range of other social issues, including... Um, getting back into work
1: and have efforts to drug test welfare payments worked in other countries that have implemented it
2: well this is the big problem for us in Australia that it has actually been trialed in several countries uh, across the world including our cousins in New Zealand and um, none of them have shown much um, either economic benefit or benefit for um, the person using drugs so there was um a Canadian study, uh, when they implemented uh, their drug testing of welfare recipients, and it really just found that it was very expensive and there was only a very marginal increase in employment among uh, welfare recipients who were tested. So for the cost of it, um, there's much better ways to get people to return to work. Um, and New Zealand originally had a look at a similar scheme Uh, To Australia, and they ended up abandoning it for a whole range of um, practical and ideological reasons, uh, which which our government should certainly be paying attention to. Um, What they ended up doing was subsequently modifying um, the drug testing of welfare welfare recipients to uh, instead just subsidise. Um, pre-employment testing, where that was already required, um, and uh, when they did that, they tested more than 8,000 people, and only got 22 positive results back. So it's a lot of expense of testing a whole range of people, putting them through that um, uh, what's not a very pleasant process, and um, marginalising them and stigmatising them for very, very few positive results.
0: Mm. You're listening to Backchat on FBI Radio 94.5 FM with Swetha Das and Amber Schultz. We're speaking with Dr. Nicole Lee from Curtin University about the proposal to drug test Start and youth allowance recipients. Now, Nicole, this policy doesn't have, I guess, a lot of evidence to support it. So why do you think the coalition is pursuing it so doggedly?
2: Um, it's probably a question for the government rather than for me. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But I think sometimes um, when people pursue ideas, um, especially in the drug field, uh, that are not evidence-based, it's because they have a particular ideology about drugs and usually that ideology is that drugs are bad and we should try and eliminate drug use in society. But I think that we know from a very, very long history in Australia and around the world that that will be impossible and we have to take a much more um, pragmatic and compassionate approach to people who use drugs and people who have problems with them.
1: And so what could activist groups do to block this legislation to make sure it doesn't become law?
2: Well, there has been, um, unlike the last two attempts at legislation, Uh, this time around, there has been uh, a lot of lobbying and um, some protesting by people in the drug and alcohol sector and in the welfare sector, which um, I think is a a good thing just to raise awareness about it. And certainly, you know, doing the usual things like writing to your local member and um, uh, protesting about it would be uh, a helpful thing.
0: So, what are some legitimate concerns that the bill raises that we should consider as the legislation goes through Parliament?
2: Sorry, I missed that question.
0: So, I guess, like, what are some of the legitimate concerns that the bill raises that you know we should consider as it goes through Parliament in our discourse about it?
2: Yeah. Look, I think the biggest thing from my point of view is um, the government wants to get people back into work. That's what they've said and they want to help people who have drug problems. And um, the problem is that this legislation doesn't do either of those things. We know that from research around the world. So if they really wanted to get people back into work, um, the best thing to do is actually to put more money into drug treatment, mm-hmm. because we know that um, the people who use drugs who don't have a problem with them, uh, that's not a barrier to, to job seeking, but if people who do have a problem with them, then um, getting them into treatment is a much better option and providing treatment. Now, the problem is, and the problem is at the moment, that treatment is only funded at about half of what's required. So um, the first thing is that it's not going to actually do what the government wants it to do. The second thing is that these kind of measures marginalise and stigmatise people who use drugs and people who are on welfare, and they're already vulnerable people who, um, you know... If you've ever been unemployed and had to go on welfare, it's a it's a humbling experience, um, and we don't. It's unhelpful to um, to stigmatise this group of people because they they are actually less likely to seek help and and to um, uh, to get a job if we do that.
1: Mm, that's absolutely true. Thank you so much for chatting us with us this morning, <laughs> Nicole. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. That was Dr Nicole Lee, a professor at Curtin University's National Drug Research Institute.
0: That's right, stay tuned because we'll be moving along to our next interview with Michael Rodriguez from the Nighttime Industries Association and Cultural Magazine Time Out. Now guys, I do not want us to forget mm. we are having a supporter drive. Now when I'm not playing Cardi B I'm playing local Australian music that is right. FBI Radio plays 50% Australian music and half of that comes from Sydney no other station has an equal commitment to supporting local music like we do here at fbi radio so please call in to support us on 833 22945
3: that's 833 22945 yeah, the australian taxpayer even pays for the toilet paper she uses does she go down to the chemist to buy the tampons or is the australian taxpayer paying for those as well
0: fact chat your alternative to talk back Sydney's controversial lockout laws could be scrapped for most of the CBD, with the New South Wales Premier hoping the move will enhance the city's nightlife.
1: Gladys Berejiklian will move to lift the 1.30am lockout laws in the CBD Entertainment District, but the law will remain in place for King's
0: Cross. So why King's Cross? Why is that one area with a ton of residential development? Hmm? I have some beef to squash. I'm definitely not biased in this conversation. Um, Today we have Michael Rodriguez, who campaigned against Sydney's lockout laws with the Nighttime Industries Association, here to answer all our pressing questions and maybe a conspiracy theory or two from me. Thanks for joining us, Michael.
4: Pleasure. Thanks for having me on.
0: Our pleasure too. So how did you get involved with the campaign to take down Sydney's lockout laws?
4: I think there's been a lot of... uh, um, I guess a uh, displeasure around those changes that occurred some time back, um, and you know running time out, which is all about going out and having fun in the city um, if you don 't can 't have fun in the city, then sort of what 's the point of a time out and uh so I think, um, you know, we talked about it and gave it quite a bit of coverage, you know, in the early years. But after all, I kind of just got sick and tired of talking about it myself um, and thought we've got to go on, you know, materially try and impact this and, and fix the, the situation. Because like many of the other issues that we face uh, in society, generally you have, I think, a political class that's somewhat disconnected from uh, what's actually going on. And things are moving quite quickly on a number of issues the last... Uh, Last Call was an example of that, and and it's uh, the voices of bartenders who aren't lobbyists, who communicate on Facebook, uh, chefs who communicate, all these things, where are those voices going into the political system? And so uh, Time Out has a pretty good grassroots knowledge of arts, culture, music, um, food, and we just realised that a lot of those stories weren't getting into the decision makers and into policy and uh, yeah, And what's that Lily Tomlin quote? It's like if if um, I used to say somebody should do something about that and then you realise you're somebody. So if it wasn't going to be um, the guy running timeout um, that kind of took that fight on, then who was it in the city? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that kind of really took off in earnest a couple of years ago. And um, yeah, it's really just been about not trying to reinvent the wheel of what other people uh, in, in the space are doing, i.e. keeps in the open, the City of Sydney, Committee for Sydney. It's been about... Really trying to get one voice from industry into uh, the political system that our decision makers can rely on as being representative because i don 't think that there's any sort of uh, you know wider nastier plan here I just think it 's a lack of information and a lack of clarity and to the extent that you look at the nighttime sector it 's actually comprised of a lot of competing interests you know there's hospitality businesses that compete with music businesses that compete with other types of performance how well do they work together and how well do they go in and say to government actually here's the two or three things that would really shift the needle for us as a sector Mm -hmm. and i don't think anyone was doing that um not not for any ill purpose just that wasn't happening and so that's kind of led to the formation of the nighttime industries association and the only problem is if you have a good idea then people say well you should share that as well so i've ended up with. my day job, as I say, than, uh, running time out and then by night uh, trying to fix the city.
1: It's a, it's a personal call to arms. <laughs> what do you think about the New South Wales government decision to wind the lockout laws back?
4: Yeah, so I guess it's kind of a bit of uh, misinformation, I would say, going on at the moment. Like There, there is no formal decision. I guess I would say that uh, the Premier has signalled her intention around changes that may come uh, and... And I guess it'd be hard for her to resolve away from, you know, lifting lockout in lower CBD now, but not impossible. Um, We've got a parliamentary report that comes out on the 30th of September that uh, a number of participants in this space have been, um, you know, involved in that inquiry, and it will contain, I imagine, a number of recommendations. And I think, uh, you know, that will then go through a process uh, of government response, And then any legislation, I think earliest you'd see that is October, November. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, as and when change happens, like it could be three months, uh, you know, two to three months or even, you know, six months away. Yeah.
0: So I just want to be real here, Michael. Sure. Okay. You know, you've been campaigning against the lockout laws for many years you know, we had a state election where there was even a Keep Sydney Open political party. Mm. We've been hearing about this for a long time. And then suddenly, midweek, where no one has been talking about this, I wake up and there's a notification. The Premier is putting her support behind getting rid of the lockout laws. Why has Mm. this suddenly come up? Like, is there a legitimate reason for Um, why it's suddenly come up?
4: I don't know. When I I guess my point is I'm happy that they're... uh, looking to change. I'd say that there's... I've, maybe I'm discovering the difference between politics and policy, mm. uh, if uh, um, you get my drift. Um, the timing of it two weeks out from the report uh, might look peculiar, but also, you know, it, it, if, if, if you put yourself, I think, in the position of um, the Premier, it's like, well, if the report's likely to come out in favour of making these recommendations, then one way to do is to get on the right side of that debate because otherwise they'll be antagonistic from people like on our side who are campaigning for things and obviously like her opposition so you know i'm kind of uh, saving off value judgments as to the timing I, i'm cool
0: uh, though because I, I think like she's always faced backlash right from you know everything. people. Who, yeah so <laughs> what you know suddenly she's like oh i am actually scared of the Nighttime Industries Association.
4: Oh, well, you know, I just think it's one of those things where, I mean, if you go back... So part of the reason it formed, right, is that the debate prior to the formation of the Nighttime Industries Association had been about police, alcohol, violence and health. And the problem with that is that those terms are just political kryptonite for everybody because as soon as you're just talking about those things, mm. um, the police and health professionals will come out and say, any premier who removes this will have blood on the streets, blah, 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 and then no action. By changing the discussion to one about nighttime economy, city vibrancy, arts, culture, it's painted a different narrative for Sydney, which is what we're trying to do. And if you have a debate on those terms, then lockout is seen in context of the restrictions it's placing on that economy. And so, you know, the word lockout just confined all manner of evil just to one word, polarised people. And we're really talking about, you know, to some of the thinking around King's Cross. It's kind of like got now this historical... Um, legacy issue that I think the medical uh, professionals are, are kind of attached to, understandably, because face dealing with that... And, you know, we're talking about, yes, the, the unfortunate deaths, but, you know, like every night for our paramedics and police in that area, it's... It, you know, I would say it's like you could understand their perspective... Now, the issue is that the cross has changed substantially. I think there's only five existing hotel Mm licences. Of the 29 high-risk venues, I think there's only maybe 14 now in operation. Um, You've commented on real estate developments in the area, which means that any change of use to properties now will be objected to by residents. You know, the city's found a new way to entertain itself in other precincts. So if you ask me, I'm saying my position is, well... Yeah, like go and let's look at the facts of King's Cross right now. It, it isn't the same location, no. and and no one no one has desire, I think, to see it go back to 2014. You know, it's a different time. Entertainment habits um, have changed, particularly in young audiences. One of my big frustrations with this whole debate is at age 43, I'm one of the youngest voices actually having an impact, uh, and it's just you know we're trying to plan future nightlife for. My kids, mm. aged, you know, f- six and three, and, you know, who's doing it? People aged 60 who don't go out, and their memories are of an era where bad behaviour was part of a night out. Mm, I grew up in Sydney, Southwest, and, um, you know, coming into the city as a man of colour, into the rocks, was like taking life into your own hands because, yeah. you know, you're more than like, you know, Likely, likely to end up in some sort of altercation.
1: It has changed so much since a few years ago, five years ago even. You're listening to Back Chat on FBI Radio 94.5 FM with Swetha Das and Amber Schultz. We're speaking to Michael Rodriguez, who campaigned against Sydney's lockout laws with the Nighttime Industries Association, speaking to us about the laws being scrapped. Now, why do you think King's Cross has been left out of the equation given that it's changed? Do you think it's fair?
4: Um, I, I don't. And as I...
0: I um, as we were just speaking about, yeah. you know, um, it feels like they are being picked on for a certain reason. Mm. And I think here at Backshot, we'd like to kind of dismantle some of the conspiracy theories I have mm, about go, it. Go for it. <laughs> so, I mean, you you would remember there was a big petition against having a 24-hour Hungry Jacks. Yep. Um, and then now they've built a nineteen-story residential property um, across the road, and apparently in twenty sixteen, a five hundred million no, five hundred million dollar property deal was signed. So, do you think that there's some sort of I, I don't want to put words in your mouth. You tell yeah, me. Yeah, that yeah, yeah, but is there some sort of like <laughs> lobbyist group or like yeah. some sort of powerful, rich force that's just you know trying to make Kings Cross the next Double Bay?
4: Yeah, I think uh, it's a Kings. Uh, you know, maybe, but also it's a metaphor for I think how Sydney works. Like, uh, if you look at developments like Barangaroo and others, these things, I I always feel like there's conversations going on uh, way above my pay grade in the city between (laughs) large business and, you know, we're just trying to, you know, get involved in some way to um, shape things. And yeah, I guess, uh, um, you know, Joe Sedotti's in the press at the moment, um, you know, with and I'm not going to comment on that, but like it's, you know, there's stuff going on, isn't there? And so... I guess um, it's, it's, it's sad, but I think you uh, have to look for where the opportunities are yeah. and try and, you know, rally people around impacting as best you can mm. and, and and provide a different alternative, you know, because uh, maybe part of the thinking is we don't want murder and mayhem on the streets. Why don't we turn it into a massive residential area because it will be safer, you know? Well, actually, it, it's not an either-or decision, is it? You can have city vibrancy and safety.
0: That's absolutely true. So just very quickly, people have texted in because this is a very hot subject. People have said that the government has achieved what they set out to do, gentrify the areas for developers. Um, Someone else has texted in saying someone needs to uh, fight over the light rail budget in the area. Um, Another person said that it seems suspect um, that this is all happening. So people are confirming my conspiracy theories. And, ooh, some people have sent in some nasty messages about our Premier, but, um, <laughs> so I'm not going to read them <laughs> Just out leave loud. Those ones. <laughs> but, um, it seems like the majority of people are very cynical about the lockout laws. And I think that as we see, uh, the bill going through Parliament with the Premier backing it, we might find out a bit more about what are the motivations behind this change. I think we will. Thank you so much for
1: talking with us this morning, Michael.
4: Oh, thanks for having me on.
1: That was Michael Rodriguez, who campaigned against Sydney's lockout laws with the Nighttime Industries Association. Don't go anywhere because we've got our final interview about women and music with Michelle Grace Hunter. Here's Godspeed by Frank Ocean.
2: Absolutely laughable. The woman's off her tree.
0: Back Chat, your alternative to talkback. A moving documentary exploring women in Australia's music scene is being released next Friday. Her Sound, Her Story is an intimate conversation with 45 artists spanning six decades discussing the experiences, triumphs and social impact of women in the industry.
1: It's being released online alongside a documentary from 1995 made by Brisbane's rock drummer Lindy Morrison called Australian Women in Rock and Pop. The comparisons are... Well, a little startling.
0: We have co-creator of the film and self-taught music photographer Michelle Grace Hunter here to chat about the making of the documentary. Hi there, Michelle. Hi, how are you going? Thanks Pretty- for having me. Oh, mm-hmm. our pleasure. So could you tell us, how did this project start?
3: Oh, it's actually quite a long-winded story, but essentially... Um I've been shooting in the music industry for uh, about eight years and and had definitely noticed a gender disparity, um, specifically in the the scene that I was shooting in, which was hip-hop at that time. Um, And when I started to look outside my own little bubble, I actually noticed that the disparity was actually across the whole industry and um, not only just artists but um, producers and behind the scenes. And um, there was a lot of conversation happening um, about... I guess, the statistics and that there was a, this glaring gap, but no one was really talking about why, like why is this happening, like actually speaking to the artist, trying to delve a little bit different, just, um, a little bit deeper than I guess the surface of, okay, yes, we can all see that there's a problem because, you know, only, um, I think it's APRA, registered with APRA is um, women make up 20%. Mm-hmm. So it's like, it's quite a big disparity. So I just wanted to explore those reasons why.
1: Yeah, it's so low, women in music, and they drop off so sharply after the age of, I think it's 22. So when you reached out to these artists, what were their reactions when they heard what you were doing?
3: Uh, It was mixed, to be honest. Um, I think a lot of the younger women were super keen to be involved and, um, you know, I guess put their perspectives across. Um, I guess women that have been in the industry for a little bit longer were, um, some of them, were a little bit more hesitant. Like, some of them were just, I guess, sick of talking about the issue, um, just like, why, why are we still having this conversation? And it took a little while to convince them that this was a different narrative that we actually wanted to, you know, explore it a little bit deeper rather than just saying, like, oh, what's it like to be a woman in, woman in music, which is what they get asked all the time. But mm. um, actually, you know, Speaking to the reasons why there is such a drop off and um, any barriers that I guess they they face, and, and and also these women are you know they're really successful, so they're not they're not victims. They are just actually just getting along with um, getting on with it, and and a lot of the barriers that are there, they've had to kind of jump over, but also just um, you know they're they're succeeding. So yeah, there was some some resistance in some um, some instances, but like overall, um, it was really really well supported and i think especially when they saw the actual documentary it's been like overwhelmingly positive and and the women have been so supportive which is awesome
0: amazing so michelle i'd love to hear what are some of the recurring stories or themes you had doing this documentary yeah i mean i
3: guess the biggest thing the overarching thing is um i think the confidence issue for for young women that you know especially around the ages of you know around 18 to kind of 22 there is such a huge lack of confidence and a lot of little things that maybe, oh, and big things as well, can really deter women from continue, continuing in the industry. Um, so I think what we really found is like um, actually just talking to other women and not seeing them as competition, because a lot of women isolate themselves sometimes and feel like they have to be the very best at anything before they'll present their art. And that was also another thing that we saw. is Women will have to, um, they really think that they have to be the best of the best. And and so anything below that, sometimes I guess their confidence is rocked a little bit. So um, I guess getting around other women and saying, hey, we also have these issues as well um, and getting around and I guess support within the community um, we've found has been really helpful. But it also can be little things like, um, you know, you might rock up to a gig and and there's a sound person there and, and it could be just an off-the-cuff remark about, you know, do you know where this is? plugs in or you know Mm. you're giving them you're giving them feedback about what you're hearing and they're not believing you or they're not even coming to listen um to what your issues are like little it it sounds kind of silly but like you know if you get that repeatedly that's like really rocking to the core of like i am an artist i know what i'm talking about why do you you know why do you continue to patronize me so Yeah. yeah there's a lot of those sort of things and then there's bigger issues like once women uh women become mothers it's really tricky um there's underlying racial issues identity issues um, so yeah it, it's very multi-layered multifaceted there's not one thing i guess it's um it's it's a multitude of lots of different things
1: but it all adds up you're listening to back yes. chat on FBI radio 94.5 fm with swetha das and amber schultz we're chatting to michelle grace hunter about her documentary her sound her story which is out this friday I wanted to ask what your thoughts on female competition in the music industry is. Uh, Does it exist and how is it portrayed?
2: Yeah,
3: I mean, I definitely think it's got better in terms of um, being pitted up against each other, if that's what you mean, like um, Mm. women being in competition with each other. It definitely was something that we found women, um, I guess women that have been around a little bit longer and they definitely found that they were continually hit it up against each other by the media, by their own, um, you know, sometimes management or labels to be like, you know, there's only one Missy Higgins or there's only, <laughs> you know, one Tina Arena or like there can't be any other space for women at that time. Um, and I do really think that that's, that's definitely changed. But you still see that, um, you know, I- I'll constantly see stuff out on Twitter that I see it's like you know who's who's the current queen of hip-hop it's like why does there need to be one queen why can't there be you know a multitude of queens
1: a team of queens. a team
3: of <laughs> exactly. queens exactly yes, yes. so so I think look I do definitely think that it's getting better what is um I think the changing the thought process for women to know you're actually not all in competition with each other there's enough space work together collaborate uh, women in collaboration is just so powerful I've definitely seen um, that myself recently, not only through what we've done with Her Sound, which has been a this huge bringing together of community, but there's been a few other things that I've been involved in that's been kind of women-only spaces or, or um, uh, uh, non-binary and gender non-conforming and, and, and creating spaces where people really flourish and it's, um, it's really beautiful to watch.
0: So... You know, we do have to wrap up, Michelle. It's been amazing speaking to you. But just to end the show, you know, you mentioned collaboration as being key here. Just quickly, what more needs to change in the industry to foster a better relationship here?
3: I think the first thing is just actually awareness. So I hope that's how the film really I guess, challenges people's perceptions of what the issues are because I think if you don't actually know or believe that there's an issue, there can be no change. So I think um, by watching the film, you see, you know, close to 50 women that, you know, are, are speaking the same about the same issue. So it's, like, very hard to argue against that many collective voices. So, yeah, I would say awareness is the key thing.
1: Thank you so much for talking with us this morning, Rochelle.
3: My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.
1: That was Michelle Grace Hunter, co-creator of Her Sound, Her Story, a documentary exploring women's voices and experiences in the Aussie music industry. The film is available online from Friday, so be sure
0: to check it out. Well, that's all we've got for the show today. Another big thanks to our producers, Eden Faithful, Natalie Sekulowska and Pip Leeson. And thanks again to our guests, Dr. Nicole Lee, Michael Rodriguez and Michelle Grace Hunter. And one final call-up for our wonderful Supporter Drive. Don't forget to call in to support FBI Radio on 8. Eight double three double two nine four five. We are completely volunteer run. We support local artists, um, and it's a great station to support. That's eight double three double two nine four five. We'll
1: catch you next week. But before we do, we're going to play a track from Samper the Great's new album, The Return.
0: Yes, that's right. Here's freedom. See you all next week.